Hello, and welcome to the GSV Ventures podcast, where we will be discussing the age of digital learning that has been kickstarted by the 1.6 billion learners forced online by the coronavirus pandemic. As the world transitions from BC before coronavirus to AD after disease, an enormous catalyst has accelerated the opportunity of the future to today. Join industry leaders, educators, government officials, entrepreneurs, and investors as we explore the AD world. This episode, Shaping the Future of Digital Learning Through Politics and Policy, is hosted by Ben Wallerstein, CEO of Whiteboard Advisors. Today's guests include Lauren Maddox, Senior Policy Advisor at Holland and Knight, Tony Miller, former Deputy Secretary of Education, and member of the Board of Directors at ACT, Apollo Education Group, Criteria Corporation, and Go Guardian. Scott Pulsifer, President of Western Governors University and member of the American Workforce Policy Advisory Board. And Liz Simon, Co-Chief Operating Officer for General Assembly. I'd love to just jump in and start with with you, Lauren. I think you're probably more than any of us really close to the action when it comes to what's happening with federal policy right now. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit at a high level about what's happened and where things are headed in terms of how Congress and the department are currently thinking about and responding to the pandemic. Sure, you bet. Uh, Great to be with you, Ben. I do love your backdrop. That's perfect. Um, And enjoyed the uh, conversation with the dean of the Harvard Business School. And I think he's right, sort of shame on us if we don't take this moment and make some some real change, some positive change. So you're right. So I'm at Holland and Knight, which is a global law firm. And we have a, um, immediately when this happened, we established a COVID-19 team. We've got experts in tax and finance and all of the policy issue areas. So we've been tracking this regularly. And I do watch pretty closely what's happening in the Congress and at the Department of Education in particular. So obviously, we've been watching some of the relief packages that have come through. Of course, tomorrow, the House will be passing the latest emergency sort of interim package. But it's really the CARES Act, which we've been following, which included the higher education uh, relief funds. It included K-12 dollars. It included monies for, for governors. So in just yesterday, the Department of Education announced this second tranche, the higher education dollars. Two weeks ago, it was a student-specific dollars. And so that's slowly but surely coming out. I think there have been some hiccups um, and some glitches along the way, but hopefully these dollars will find their way quickly to students and to institutions. So we're watching that closely. I think the the other thing that I think um, should happen and, and should happen pretty quickly is for the department to finalize the distance education regulations. They issued some proposed rules. You know, they had negotiated rulemaking last year. They did reach rare consensus on on sort of the direction of those. We're in a 30-day comment period, but I really think the department needs to to push out those regs and provide for early implementation, even though they won't be able to enforce it for a year. So I think that's important because that's going to be a good guidepost about how to do distance education. As we know, it was sort of a mad scramble process of transitioning. So there are a lot of challenges there, and I'm I'm sure other panelists will address some of those as well. And finally, I think the other thing we're looking at, we're going to pivot very quickly to, is another relief and probably slash infrastructure bill. And I think in that, you're going to see 
uh, something that Secretary Mnuchin talked about yesterday at a press conference. Twice he mentioned broadband access is so important, especially for rural America. So I think that's top of mind for him. And that'll be part of another package. And then I think while HCA, the Higher Education Act reauthorization, is, is essentially dead for the year, I think could some of the policy priorities of some of the members find their way into a relief package, for instance, short-term Pell. That's bipartisan support for that. Could we see that in a relief package? What about extending the, the student loan borrower relief, including borrowers as well in that program? Because there's no way this administration is going to turn on a repayment October 1, you know, one month before the election. So they're going to have to extend some of these borrower relief provisions. But anyway, so with that, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. Terrific. And um, I'd love to turn to, you talked a little bit about, about online learning. President Pulsifer, you're, I think, an institution that so many of us think about when we think about innovation in post-secondary education and online learning in particular. You have a massive and really diverse student population. I'd love to just ask you to talk a little bit about the extent to which the crisis has highlighted equity or help to lay bare equity challenges that you're seeing among your student population and talk a little bit about maybe what you see as the implications of that for policymakers. We've seen a move toward emergency aid for institutions in the last week or so, which is really, really significant, but would love to just give, get a perspective of what, what's really happening in the field. Yeah, uh, Ben, thank you. And thank you for uh, letting me participate with these uh, panelists here. It's great to see all of you. It is interesting to see this kind of shot in the arm, if you will, around uh, the advancement of digital learning. But what one thing it's clearly highlighted, and you're already hearing actually from Lauren, is what's being contemplated in policy and stimulus consideration is that when everything abruptly has to move to digital, you realize that there's massive inequity when it comes to access to digital. And that's not only broadband infrastructure, it also includes just simply technology, meaning computers and the ability to access all the learning that and the learning management systems, et cetera, that institutions are now relying upon. And I think if I recall uh, from the K-12 numbers, you know, we have roughly 60 million individuals in the K-12 system. And I think it was estimated that some 10 or 12 million of those, 20% of them don't have reliable technology access. And so even in the K-12 model, what you're seeing is, is that this now is uh, amplifying the inequity that exists around the access to high quality education and the pathways that are required to help individuals change their lives. And this is true also now in higher education. Uh, I think we all know the stats that the attainment rates over the last 50 years have decidedly favored the privileged. And when now you move to digital access, uh, if you haven't fundamentally solved things like broadband infrastructure is now no longer an issue or a perception of convenience, but a reality when it comes to livelihood and accessing high quality education, you now have a lot of displaced students this goes further when you consider the already 22 million adults who've applied for jobless claims in the last uh, 30 days that we expect to grow, is that's also heavily concentrated among our populations of color and the individuals there, the low-income households. And these individuals are also the ones who desperately need access to reskilling pathways and learning pathways. I think there's a great strata survey that's been uh, that's happened that's already surveying these displaced workers, and uh, fully a third of them are saying that I need to get to an educational pathway. And the vast majority of those who say that are also expecting to go online. But now the question is, can you have reliable access to do so? So this is an underlying you know, infrastructural issue that we in education over the last 50 years have not proven that we've solved really well, which is how do you make education work for everyone, especially the disadvantaged? 
And so this will be something that we have to focus on going forward. Terrific. Well, well, I really appreciate that. Just one quick follow-on question. I've been reading about the work of, of organizations like Digital Us and others that are highlighting not just access gaps, but also gaps in, in digital literacy. Would love to hear a little bit just about, you know, as, a, as an online institution, maybe that's something that you've already been in a position to, uh, maybe you're not grappling with that in the way that other institutions are. I'm just curious about either implications for policymakers or just recommendations to other institutions that are encountering issues that, that you've perhaps already experienced o- over the years. Yeah, and it addresses, I'll talk about our model a little bit. I think this is uh, in, in many of those institutions are now experiencing the, del- the delivery model that is internet-based versus uh, in-person-based, is that it dramatically increases our ability to personalize the engagement with every individual. And so whether it's digital liter- literacy or whether it's just simply time management and planning, whether it's actually even the issues of self-efficacy and purpose, one of the unique things that Bob Mendenhall, our, really our founding president, he realized early on that, in fact, now when you have this one-to-one interaction or really the interaction that's digitized, you have to rethink your student experience on an individual level. And so one of the key factors is now it becomes every individual needs the kind of uh, engagement, the support, the, the instruction that is now very direct and personal rather than a broadcast mode, lecture mode, et cetera, because most of that stuff, as I've said previously, that's just content online. You can already access all the best lectures and the best learning resources, et cetera, online. The issue is, is how do I get the support that's directly relevant to me? So our approach to addressing all forms of inadequacies or deficiencies exist are on an individual level with our faculty program, faculty uh, that are mentor models that from the day you start to the day you complete, you have a program faculty mentor who is there to basically help you not only provide the instruction necessary, but scheduling, but addressing the support issues, et cetera. And you have to have that kind of 360 degree community of care around every individual. That's uh, re- really, really helpful. And I think sets the table for the, for the rest of this discussion. We've got, we've got two former Obama administration officials on here, Tony and, and, and Liz. I want to start with Tony. You oversaw a, a big portfolio at the department during the, the last recession in the wake of the 2007-08 financial crisis. How does this look different from what you've seen in the past in, in 07, 08, 09? And what's similar? What can we take away? Uh, what lessons can we take away from what happened then as we navigate the new normal? What's different? Let's start with what's different. Because, I mean, what's clearly the same is a huge need and a disruption of education from K-12 through higher ed. I think the timing is something that actually, in hindsight, was something that was fortuitous. And that with a new administration coming in, you actually had a, a fair amount of thinking with regard to policy agendas. And so in the, in, in the, the classic word of let no crisis um, not be used, um, we actually then were able to say in the context of a recovery act, right, and, and the stimulus money's there, we thought not just how do you stimulate the economy, how do you mitigate job loss, but how do you also have to do double duty to, uh, to try to advance some, some policy agendas in terms of trying to close the achievement gap, trying to increase the level of innovation in the sector. And so we had the benefit of some plea planning so that by February 17th, after a new inauguration, so in less than a month, we were able to, to combine, if you will, $100 billion, which again, a larger amount of total spending, $100 billion, but also use it to advance some, some significant policy goals. With, in, the, in the scheme of things, relatively small pots of money, uh, if you think about $5 billion in total, um, if you think about programs like Race to the Top and, and Investing in Innovation I3, it was in the context of $100 billion, 
And again, it was in support of what the states were doing. So I think what's different is, I'd say, you know, the administration was not not as prepared, if you will, in terms of how do they think about a policy agenda in context of stimulus money. So I think that's what's different. I don't think that's a lost opportunity, but I think that's an opportunity that needs to be that needs to be taken advantage of pretty quickly. The competing pressure that we had was you've got to make the money available relatively quickly. And so it does require to not go through the bureaucratic process. You have to stand up new offices, new capabilities and new programs. And speed is of the essence. And so that can be challenging, right, in an environment where you don't have capacity. I think that's actually similar in the context of a new change of administration. You're not fully staffed up. And my guess is in the context of the department, you have you know, different levels of capability and capacity, especially at this term and you know, at this point in a, in a four-year term. And so I think that's actually fairly similar, but I do think it, it can be done. I think the biggest opportunity that I see, and if I think about K-12 for a moment, it's how can the CARES Act or the future CARES Act 4.0, how can it better engage and support states' efforts? And so I think there's this notion of leverage of putting federal resources that link to state resources to get, if you will, more wood behind the arrow. And so an, an example would be to the degree that monies are going to be used to ensure continuity of learning, largely through ensuring there's a digital infrastructure. How do you make sure that states are also supporting that? And so, again, you can do things with maintenance of efforts. You can do minimum requirements at the state level. But these are things that are going to have long lasting impact on building out that capacity. Obviously, there's also coordination across where it is with the FCC and the E-rate and using that to address, if you will, the true last mile of home internet access. And so how do you get coordination there to help address the digital divide? So getting cross-agency coordination is another real opportunity. And then I think lessons learned, and you see this reflected in proposals that are being put forward now in higher education that would extend, if you will, either debt relief, provide debt relief, or at least extend the, the deferment on loan repayment and wage garnishment. So I think what we realize is these recessionary impacts have a long tail to them and can provide an incredible ho- overhang to the very students, uh, many of them adult learners in higher ed, right? The, the very students that we care a lot about in terms of getting the skills, they can dig themselves in such a hole with debt that in fact, it encumbers their ability to fully participate in the economy once the economy starts to rebound. And so I think debt mitigation is something we learned in the last recession, and I'd be hopeful it'd be continue to be picked up and supported and even expanded, as, as Lauren said, with FELP and Perkins and other loan programs that right now are not included. You'd like to see that expanded and extended. And I think that would be a lesson learned from, from the last round. Terrific. Well, thank, thanks, Tony. It's obviously great to have, have you on given that experience. Uh, Liz, you also worked in the administration. General Assembly was a tech hire recipient, I think, in what year was that? 2009? Slightly later, but yeah. A few, yeah. Before we get into that, you all are uniquely in a position to sort of identify these like shovel-ready training programs. You're up and running in Louisville. So just as, as part of this initial round of questions, really setting the table about the equity implications, what's happening from a macro perspective, lessons learned from Tony. Talk to us a little bit about what, what you're seeing in a place like Louisville. I mean, that, that program, I feel like, got up and running really, really quickly with the support of the mayor. What are you seeing at a, at a local level? Yeah, thanks. And and I think, you know, just a more macro point before getting into that. At GA, you know, I would say differently probably than a lot of folks in the sort of post-secondary landscape, right? We we are sort of uniquely suited to be able to move everything that we have online 
deliver programs remotely, leverage technology, and equip people quickly who, especially those who've been you know, displaced by COVID, get skills in the hands of people who need them most very quickly. And so, so one of the things that we are doing, and, and Ben referenced it, is in Louisville, we had already been doing some work with Humana, which is a major employer there. And so we'd been part of sort of a reskilling coalition that had existed pre-COVID, but obviously in response to what's happening in the current moment, both the public as well as the private sector and, and sort of the philanthropic side of the private sector immediately started to mobilize around what are the ways that as a community we can support workers who are deeply impacted and already being displaced by COVID. We know those numbers are staggering, you know, all around the country, not to mention the world. And so we are part of a reskilling coalition that was actually formally launched last week with Humana, Microsoft, as, you know, to Scott's point about the sort of inequities around technology and access, ensuring that the folks who've been displaced have the technology to be able to access these trainings is, is a key part of Microsoft's role in the coalition, as well as with the mayor's office. And, and there's kind of two phases of the work. Phase one is kind of 90 day, first 90 day rapid response where anybody free of charge, fully subsidized by Humana and as well as the mayor's office is able to access any one of GA's trainings at no cost to them. And we, in the first week, saw 25,000 people express interest in taking one of these programs, 3,500 people in the first 24 hours. Phase two, then I think looks like something that's a bit, a bit more sustainable and it has expanded way beyond GA, which is, you know, with University of Louisville, all kinds of other higher education partners. We you know, expand the, the set of course offerings that folks are able to access all, again, at no cost and sort of think about what is the sustainable ecosystem that we create that is, again, equipping people with these skills and helping to get them back to work. I think that's just an example of the private sector moving more quickly as we sort of are waiting to see where the big sort of federal and state policies are going to land, how stimulus money is going to be, you know, brought to bear on these great economic concerns. We see movement driven quickly by by local leaders as well as philanthropy to start taking action in communities, which we're being approached by communities all over the country, not just in Louisville, about replicating this model quickly. So I think hopefully what the model we have is one that can scale, but also then can ladder up and plug into whatever you know, longer term stimulus funding or opportunities emerge from from a policy perspective. Terrific. Terrific. I, and I want to turn back to Lord. I, I want to shift a little bit towards what's in the legislation. So I've, I was reading about some of the work that Bright Horizons is doing around, which is an administrator of, of student loan benefits, repayment as a benefit. So there's a nugget in the legislation that actually allows employers to fund student loan payments for employees in a way that that's excluded from their income, similar to the way that employer tuition assistance works. Something we've been talking about for a really long time in the policy world, but hasn't been enacted with that degree of clarity or specificity. I think that's a temporary provision. But Lauren, I want to talk a little bit about what's in there. And then I'd love to turn to Liz and Scott and talk a little bit about what some of the barriers are, what's not in there, and to, to what extent there are maybe vestigial requirements that should be or could be removed in ways that would allow 
education providers to be even more responsive to some of the needs they're seeing. First, I, kudos to Liz because I think your program uh, sounds terrific and I love the philanthropic piece because I know even in talking to some of our clients too, they're, they're sort of not waiting for the, the federal dollars to flow. They're actually seeking philanthropic support and getting it on the outside as well. So I think that's, that's really good. I think, you know, I think this sort of initial tranche of money was really focused on the student. How do we get monies into the hands of students as quickly as we can to meet their housing needs, their food needs, et cetera. So I, I think we're still sort of waiting for that. I think uh, that needs to move more quickly. I think Tony made a really good point on speed. Let's get these dollars out and trust that these institutions will be doing right by their students and, and supporting them. So I think that's critical. So I think that's really what's the focus. And honestly, in talking to people on the Hill, with the passage of CARES, they weren't even sure exactly how these dollars were going to be used, you know, what student expenses were going to be covered, how institutions, you know, needed to spend this money, and of course, very different all over the place. So they really wanted maximum flexibility to be given to the institution. So I think they're just as interested as we are about how these dollars are going to be spent. So I think that was sort of the initial. And so then the question is, you know, how are these dollars being utilized? Where are the shortfalls? Where are the opportunities? Where do we need to put more investment dollars? In particular, I've spent a lot of time in the higher education, but K-12 as well. You know, there are going to be some academic losses there. So how do we address that? How do we make sure that teachers have the curriculum materials that they need, the intensive interventions that they're going to need to make sure that, you know, again, this question of equity, you know, I've got a kid in high school, one in college, they're both finishing, you know, online. My high school senior, I said, I don't know if you're going to be starting in the fall or if you're going to be online, et cetera. It's very different. My kids, you know, have a computer, they have, they have access, but there's a lot of kids who do not, and it's very uneven, and it's really exposed some of the inequities there. So we really need to get on top of this. How do we make sure that school districts, et cetera, feel confident about making certain investments to make sure they have what they need going to the new school year. And then the summer, you know, again, you're looking at what happens during the summer months. They do some work in the after school and summer learning space as well. And, you know, learning happens at all times of the day in the regular school hour, out of school time, et cetera. So how are they uh, sort of innovating? How do they make sure that those moments of, you know, especially in, in summer, exploring, adventure, et cetera. How do we make that possible for these young kids as well? So looking at all of that, and again, back to some of this, you know, a student loan borrower relief too, we really need to make sure this is, as Tony said, very long tail on this. We want to make sure that, again, that these students are taken care of. So at all levels. Sure. I want to just give, just give a quick example, and, and I'll, I won't get this quite right, Liz, but, but the, um, and maybe just to seed a discussion with you and with Scott, early on, you know, General Assembly, I know, moved your programs online, like, overnight. A number of your students were, were, were veterans who were funded through the GI Bill, and the GI Bill funding didn't, didn't allow participation. This may be something President Pulsifer knows more about than, than you or me, but there were inequities in how federal GI Bill funding could be used in the case of online programs. You know, that was, I think, resolved relatively quickly in order to allow for continuity of our veterans who were enrolled in programs that weren't online when they started, but moved online three weeks ago. President Pulsifer, can you talk a little bit about where there may be friction, where there are barriers, again, as a result of either vestigial policies or things that might impede your ability to deliver on your mission at the scale that you do, and that might be smart to eliminate or suspend on a, you know, a temporary basis? I'll put some of those in maybe a short-term context because I think there are still many barriers that exist to where I think the future of education to work is actually going. But 
today, I think even our, some of these are being addressed as, uh, as Lauren referenced, the negotiated rulemaking around distance education is actually advancing because there's at least a recognition that in the future of digitized or at least digitally enabled learning, even if it's in a blended model, you know, institutions are rethinking the faculty-student interaction and how do you actually do that. Uh, you know, most know very well that, in fact, our disaggregated faculty role was not at all kind of contemplated in legislative models as were conceived in, you know, 2008 when the last iteration of the HEA was. And even if digital learning was there, no one really thought that the instructor-student model was going to be disaggregated the way we have, but it's shown to be really effective. And I think what people are realizing is now if the 15% of the 20 million students enrolled in post-secondary education all of a sudden becomes 30% overnight that are exclusively online, you're really going to have to advance a lot of the legislation and the policy and the regulation that's in place to support the many different ways institutions are going to innovate. At the same time, you have to have what often people talk about as guardrails, but I really think it's more related to what are the measures to ensure that there's quality and outcomes for the students that they're all intending to serve? Do we know that the design of the curriculum is actually a pathway to opportunity? Do we know it's economically viable? Do we know that students are persisting and progressing and attaining? Like it is forcing the same conversation around what are the measures of quality that in fact can be there as checks against innovation run rampant, if you will. And so those are, I think, two key areas where we have blockers to it. I will say one big, big blocker uh, that I think right now is being rethought is what I think more broadly as how do we contemplate policy to support uh, students who are pursuing not only first opportunity, meaning the traditional 18-year-old who's going first time, full-time to college, and really all the uh, working learners who are pursuing their next opportunity that HEA policy and federal aid policy, et cetera, has not largely contemplated those who are pursuing now stackable credentials or the short form high quality credentials that are needed for reskilling, upskilling. And so the first endeavor in that regard is short-term Pell, if you will. But quite frankly, you need to rethink the whole regulatory model to support now a much closer education workforce collaboration around a lot of the emerging next opportunity endeavors around education that are going to become very prevalent in our future. I want to build on, on that, this notion of, I think it's, you know, you read Mitch Daniels' letter and you think about Purdue. We heard earlier about Harvard. And I think still a lot of us think about this disrupted on-ground model and how catastrophic that's been for many. I still think that misses the average student and kind of what's the profile of the average college student in the environment. And I think to, to Scott's point, it's often a hybrid or an online model. And I think standing up the capability, I think a lot of people think it's the notion of partner with an OPM, put courses online, but arguably that's easier versus all the student supports that Scott was talking to. How do you make this more personalized, engage to actually get the student to persist and actually get the benefit of that online? That is a whole level of infrastructure and capability that a lot of the institutions as they stand up are going to evolve into. I know at the University of Phoenix, under, under you know, Peter Cohen's leadership, for the last going on three years, right, we have had consistent, term after term, improvements in student persistency and progression. And people say, what do you do? And it, the reality is, it's not one thing, it's 50 things, right? And it's the relentless, continuous improvement approach. Kind of that capability and that understanding, making sure that our policies reflect that, um, I think is going to be important. So specifically, Right now, the institutional support is for, it excludes the exclusively online student, 
I think we need to think about, right, the supports that as they bring on these students, they become more online, those institutions are still going to need to build out those capabilities. So I think thinking through that will be one. And that's on the higher ed side. I also think it's the notion of making sure we recognize that institutions that are online are in fact included in the broad community. Because I think right now we can still do the online, offline. And I think right now we have to think about it as in a more blended community. And then the point being, what's going to differ is the underlying student profile. And I think if you thought about, if I had my druthers, right, and said, you know, what would be a really innovative long-term, it would be to not just do we move away from only first-time, full-time, but we also get more sophisticated in understanding the risk factors of the underlying student population. And then as we move to more outcomes assessment, we are able to assess institutions and their ability to deliver outcomes on a risk-adjusted basis. Because otherwise, I think you're going to find that institutions who are very effective at getting students to progress, especially by risk factor, may have a disadvantage if you just use a very simple, doesn't really matter, it's one measure for all students regardless of modality. I think that is not ultimately good education policy. It's not going to be the best interest for getting more of our students with the appropriate skills and degrees that they need. It's a great point and, and um, terrific work. You, know, you see it in the strata data. You see it in um, somebody cited earlier. You see it in the, the work of higher learning advocates and others where the, there's, the, there's been a massive demographic shift in the student population uh, since we last reauthorized the law. And perhaps that was those fault lines were arguably less problematic in a world where you had very, very low unemployment in a high growth economy. I think they've been exposed as a result of the crisis and, the, and, and just what is like an unprecedentedly fast uh, displacement of American workers, the, the fastest ever in a hundred years. Uh, Liz, I think you were going to just maybe just jump in, just to jump in for a little bit and, and talk a little bit about your student population. And I would ask, let's frame things in terms of what the takeaways should be from a public policy standpoint and how people should be thinking about it through that lens. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this this builds a bit on the points that Scott was starting to make, which is a, a good tip for kind of at least how how I, for my CWGA, see things kind of shaping up, which is none of the major funding and legislative vehicles we have, whether it's HEA and Pell or YOA and, and workforce funding, like not, none of those were designed with an institution like GA in mind to the point about, you know, the people that we are serving and the student population of GA is not. 18-year-olds, I mean, by and large is not 18-year-olds coming to us looking to replace a college experience. These are people who are on average 30 years old and either, you know, have been in the working world and are looking to up or reskill themselves into a new career at some point. And where we started is is much more about people who could afford to pay out of pocket, but but increasingly the model of, of students of GA is not not only those, but increasingly we see students looking to models like ISAs or, or other things to be able to fund their education at GA versus where I think we started maybe 10 years ago, which is, you know, people who had the ability to pay out of pocket for an expensive, you know, three-month reskilling course. So I think this moment demands not only a hard look at sort of what are all the models and, and what are the right incentive structures? Who Who is the payer? Should employers have a bigger role? How might we incentivize employer behavior to invest in, in training or upskilling or reskilling differently, whether it's for their own workers or for their communities? You know, I, I don't know. There There's certainly lots of different models out there. There's lots of things that, that we've pushed for for a long time, which seems like their moment may have come, you know, whether it's lifting the cap on employer tuition reimbursements or, you know, additional tax credits and things around investments and training and things like that. 
can I just uh, add on because yeah. I think there are some implications that become pretty interesting and, and useful, which is just think about the criteria of what, what expenses are eligible for federal aid in an online or a digital model versus a you know fully on on premise model. You know, think about uh, when it's you know part time enrollment versus full time enrollment. How would you consider eligibility under that? You would also consider about how or to, can employers have tax benefits associated with beyond the 5250 tuition assistance that they have in employer models. And you could also think, you know, the, the lifelong learning account is a very interesting, I think, and compelling model that can be a federally funded model that says whether it's your first one or your next credential you're pursuing, you have a lifelong learning account that you can utilize to pursue that. But just consider also the data, I think, Tony, where you were highlighting that if we have a working learner population, you know, should we really be funding all housing and living expenses, everything else? But you could also see the other side of which is you just had 22 million people displaced that have no form of income to cover all those expenses. But if I elect to go to a campus-based learning environment, I can have them all covered with federal aid. You're like, well, isn't there a way by which we can rethink that model? The last thing I would say is there could be an interesting and compelling policy model around the debt forgiveness beyond even debt deferment, which is you have 30 million adults who have student loans out there but have no degree. You could do very targeted student loan forgiveness while also providing outcomes-based aid to individuals who need that reskilling that are more based upon, hey, you pay nothing. If you complete, you pay nothing, basically. Make it based upon persistence of progress that basically says you have all the aid that you need to pursue this, and upon completion, it's fully forgiven. That you can actually start aligning financial aid incentives along with the uh, students' incentives to actually complete and progress because that's what ultimately what they need is they need to attain that credential so they can you know, be on the pathway to opportunity. These are all being contemplated right now. If for uh, One thing I would say that we know is from, uh, at least from my standpoint and the participation on the Workforce Policy Advisory Board, I've never seen the moment where workforce and employers are very closely aligned with education institutions and trying to figure out how to how to help the educational work pathway work more effectively in the future. And they're both weighing in on how we can influence policies so that that future state can be realized. It's a terrific point. I think um, we've seen a lot of interesting writing, you know, out of uh, JFF and a design lab, the CHCP and others just sort of like really focusing in on this intersection of education and employment, you know, whether it's providers like Bright Horizons and Guild, I know General Assembly participates in those programs. There just seems to be a moment where the historic uh, silos between education funding and workforce funding and tax incentives for employers, given the, again, the pace with which the economy turned downward and, and hopefully the, the pace at which it will recover and the, the, and the pace at which it needs to recover can really be collapsed. Lauren, What's really viable, right? So when you think about things like whether it's education savings accounts or short-term Pell or really rethinking the, you know, Michael Horn's been writing a lot about uh, for, for years, really following the equip experiment, right? Like what do we mean by, by quality in post-secondary education and to what extent does that allow in new types of providers? Is this a moment where we're likely to see real durable policy shifts, obviously things like emergency aid and that are responsive to the immediate crisis, you know, what Bill Hansen calls this recovery phase, like th th those are really, really important. But is it, a, is it a moment where we're likely to see any, any tinkering that, you know, that, that'll change the structure long term? 
First of all, that's a great question. And I always remind people, you know, Congress is a, a just a responsive body. They're they're not sort of necessarily lean in, the innovators, the I mean, there are some good ideas and we've all just talked about a, a number of them that people have been talking about, but I think it just takes Congress a, a very long time. It's why Scott said that we last reauthorized Higher Education Act, you know, in 2008. And so, and I think back at that time, and I was at the department under Margaret Spellings, and she did the, her commission on the future of higher education. And, you know, every now and again, I just pull that out and read it. And it, at that point, too, she talked about sort of this intersection, let's get business together with education, you know, and, and really drive that. Because at the end of the day, you know, what do we want out of our education? We, we want to learn, but we also want a job, a successful, you know, career, et cetera, or whatever. So I think it, it needs to lead to something. So that was the point of her, her commission. How do we do that? How do we make sure there are outcomes, you know, it's affordable, it's accessible, you know, et cetera. So I, I love a lot of these ideas. And I think, you, you know, I've talked to Congress about a lot of these ideas. And I think on the merits, I think that's what frustrates people outside of Washington is that it just seems so such a, a sort of common sense uh, solution to this, that and the other. But all of this has a budget implication. So I think even now, it's, a, it's kind of funny to talk about budgets because so much money is going out the door and you wonder how at the end of the day, it's all going to be paid for. But I think, again, you, you tinker on any of these policies and it has a budget implications. So they're always, you know, going after what they call the race to zero. You know, how do you have the least impact on the budget, but make those sort of necessary tweaks? So I think that's, that sort of hampers Congress from actually doing something. But again, I think Higher Education Act, could there be some bipartisan, you know, like the short-term Pell, geared to, you know, upskill, you know, on jobs and direct correlation to jobs, you know, could, could we see something like that in there? Again, they've been going back and forth as bipartisan, but the devil's in the details. So we're just going to have to see uh, how they how they work this next sort of relief and, and infrastructure stimulus package. Cool. Tony, just from your seat, what's one big change that you think might might happen if we're, you know, give, give the folks on the line some intelligence about where the policy might shift? If you limit it to practicality, um, you know, I, I think one thing in the near term, I won't call it a big change, but what's probably being talked about, I think Lauren could speak to it. It wouldn't surprise me if you saw a, an increase in Pell with a max on Pell. So just more money out there for Pell, separate from whether they expand the use for short-term Pell. But I do think that is a real, it was done the last time. And so you can, might see actually more dollars out there to try to support, again, it's a way for the direction seats. So I think that's in the cards. The way I would think about it is, if you think about Recovery 4.0, I would think about that as an extension of a lot of the current existing programs with some tweaks. I think it's worth thinking about CARES Act 5.0, and then separate from long-term. And when I think about CARES 5.0, I think we should think about what does re-entry look like, right? Not just what's the mitigation between now and the summer, but what does actually re-entry look like? And can we reserve, recognize we're under a fixed resources, fixed budget constraints at some point, can we reserve funding to actually support institutions once we have full reentry? And again, if I step back holistically, here's what we know. For example, let's go all the way to the continuum. We know early learning, the impact that early learning has in terms of helping to mitigate the achievement gap, we know that that's pretty effective. We also know that that's been compromised. So how do you actually you know, support those families Anybody who's got kids, regardless of their age, who've been working from home, knows how challenging it's been to support the education of those kids. And the lower you get, the more challenging it's been. 
And so just recognizing they're going to be at a disadvantage, right, once the economy does come back and people are back in employment. So how do you mitigate that? So is there money to support early learning? Again, as you think about K-12, how do we think about, you know, the lessons learned? Of, they're, they're, it's a real, the whole digital divide and its impact is real. How do you mitigate that once we have full reentry, right? Is there additional supports? How do you ensure a continuity of learning? And how do you actually plus up to make sure that those who need clearly more remediation in the past, how do you make sure that the resources are available and the professional development is going to be there to support the teacher? I think that's critical. And then when you move in post-secondary, I would think about, you know, how do you actually navigate, right? How, how does a working adult who now wants to get access to near-term programs that are effective, how do they navigate what is clearly a fragmented, unclear? And I think providing funding for the intermediaries out there, right, at the state, the Goodwills and others who are actually providing, if you will, a critical role, they're, they're serving a critical role in helping the displaced and unemployed navigate the reentry in terms of part-time work versus relevant training programs, how do we ensure that infrastructure is there to support that transition? I think those are things that I think are practical that can be done in a CARES Act 5.0. Sure. Well, well I really appreciate that. And, and, and again, I hate to, I don't want to end abruptly, but that was, a, I think that was a really thoughtful summation. Again, humbled to have the chance to moderate a discussion with a, with a crew that has such terrific experience, tremendous dynamism right now in the in the policy environment, and um, and really appreciate the chance to get your insights from both a macro perspective and also from the providers on the line to really uh, and institutions on the line really hear about what's happening in the field and the implications that we should all be taking into account. So th- thanks for making the time, and, and and Deborah, thanks for allowing us to do this. Thank you all. That was uh, fantastic. Bravo. We appreciate it. And I'm sure there are, the people have a lot more questions they'd like to shoot to you. So um, thank you guys for your time this afternoon. This episode of the GSV Ventures podcast, Shaping the Future of Digital Learning Through Politics and Policy, is brought to you by the 2020 ASU GSV Summit, September 29th through October 1st at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego, California. The ASU GSV Summit wishes to thank our sponsor partners, including American Student Assistance, the Sanford Program at National University, and ETS. Please visit asugsvsummit.com for more information.